Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining. Glad you are here. Happy you are listening. Many of you have heard me talk about economic liberty in in the context of greater liberty, civil liberties and whatnot. But economic liberty is, is uniquely important because it gives you power to act in the marketplace. Um, for example, if your speech is, you know, limited, uh, you, you can be quiet, but you can still go to the grocery store and get bread and eggs and milk and so on and so forth. It's not, you're not going to starve because your speech is limited. So economic liberty is, is, an, is an important aspect of surviving, you know, thriving in a, in a society, whether it be free or not. Um, and so uh, many of us have savings, okay? We've spent a lifetime or however long we've been productive in the in the workforce, saving money. Now, you could be saving that money in a 401k or in a savings account or an IRA. Or, you know, you might just be, like I said, saving in a savings account. And so, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, bubbles in the economy, the stock market, inflation, the Fed, uh, society at large. We're going we're gonna to have like a little smorgasbord around um, primarily the stock market, but then how that's going to impact other things in our society that, that are late, related to economic liberty. And so it really doesn't matter if you have a 401k or just a savings account um, or, or how you've acquired your savings or whether really even you have savings at all. I mean... If you, if you don't have savings, then uh, this episode might give you a little, um, a little hope and, and, and not feeling like, it's, like, it, like you've missed out, you know, on too much. Um, that's in part the way I look at it. Like uh, sometimes you can look at the market and see, wow, the, the S&P 500 went all the way up to 4,800 and I've missed out, you know. But um, there are things afoot that uh, are going to likely change that. And we're going to speculate a little bit today and delve into what the future might look like, uh, specifically given now that interest rates have have uh, stopped going down or stopped being flat and have turned up. I think that's a signal that it's time to uh, look a little deeper at these markets and potentially... Um, make some decisions about uh, coming out of these markets as an individual investor. So with that, uh, I've got a, there's an interview here with, uh, on Bloomberg with a guy named Jeremy Grantham. And Jeremy Grantham is one of these guys, you don't see him on TV much or, um, or anything like that, but he's a, a, a world famous investor, <clears throat> very smart guy. He's made billions and billions and billions of dollars in uh, financial markets, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And Jeremy Grantham, along with people like Jim Rogers, um, 
I, I think are some of the smartest investors, people you should definitely listen to. There's a whole bunch of people you shouldn't listen to, in my opinion, in, including maybe me. <laughs> I'll just be honest and say that I'm not uh, I'm not someone that's made billions and billions of dollars. Uh, Ray Dalio, I think, is is someone worth listening to. I think some of these guys that are ultra wealthy have looked back on their careers, especially the older ones, and they're reflecting kind of on their part and and they're they're starting to reflect in a way that you know was what I did good and 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 I think that's a healthy thing to do. Uh, you certainly see that with Ray Dalio. Uh, you hear that a little bit in this interview with Jeremy Grantham. So. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a little bit of this interview and we're going to comment on some things and just listen to how the conversation goes with uh, the Bloomberg reporter and Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy Grantham has been investing for a half century and calling bubbles for almost as long. He's a living legend in financial markets. A year ago, Jeremy predicted the pandemic rally would end with a historic crash. Here's what he told me. When you have reached this level of obvious super enthusiasm. The bubble has always, without exception, broken in the next few months, not a few years. So that quote we just heard was from January of 2021. So clearly we're well into 2022 and, you know, we haven't had this super bubble crash or, or whatever. Now the market is very weak right now. It's been down in fact, it was down six, week, six weeks in a row um, and, and has been soft for a few months. But uh, uh, Jeremy Grantham is going to explain this, or he's going to try to explain why he feels like he was a little bit off there in January of 2021. Jeremy, a year ago, you predicted an epic collapse in stock prices, and you told me it would rival the 1929 crash and the dot-com bust of 2000-2001. Were you wrong? No, I don't think so. Uh, I noticed reviewing it last night that there was one little element of contradiction. At one stage I said, you can't call these events to within a few months. And at another point I said, History says that when you reach this level of craziness, the market tends to break within a few months rather than a few years. And I think with hindsight, the market started to get distinctly weaker about 10 months after we talked. So that's a few months plus a little bit. So what I would say about that first is it's always very difficult to time uh, the market. Just in general, it's very difficult to time the market. And I would say secondarily, it's even more difficult to decide when you're going to have one of these major market sell-offs. Um, these are just very difficult things to do, but they're, people have been trying for a long time because they're, they're looking at certain signs in the marketplace. And uh, Jeremy Grantham was starting to see some of those signs in January 2021. Now, the other thing to say about this that I think it's important to say is he's talking about a 1929-style crash, okay? And that, in defense of Jeremy Grantham, 
that is a once in a hundred year kind of event. And so that's even more difficult to predict. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's what he's doing here is, is, is very much in the prediction game, but he gives some good evidence as to why he thinks um, we're, we're in this period of risk. And that's really what it is. It's really a way to evaluate, you know, how do I evaluate my risk? If I, if I put new money into the market this year, is it, is it likely to increase in value or is it likely to go down in value? And so it's, it's just a, an evaluation of the risk versus the reward. All the same, 2021 was a great year for stocks. If I'm not mistaken, the seventh best in a half century. And, and this has been exactly how the great bubbles have broken. The, the blue chips, the S&P 500, have kept strong right up to the last second. And wave after wave of the stocks that had made the real running uh, peel off and drop. In 1929, the, the flakes were down for the year before the market broke. They were down 30%. The year before, they'd been up 85. They had crushed the market. The really classic example of this is the Russell 2000, which is stock number 1001 to 3000. They're multi-billion dollar companies. They're a serious enterprise. In the last year, they are down. They have not made any money at all. The S&P's made 23%. The Russell 2000 is meant to go up about 1.2 times the market. In a bull market like you're saying there was, it should have been up about 30%. It, it wasn't even up recently. So. This, is, this is a huge divergence of a kind that has never happened other than the super bubbles of 1929 and 2000. Okay, so right now we're going to back up just a little bit and fill in some gaps about what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, stocks peeling off and, and he's using terminology like that. So what happens when the market tops is segment by segment. So like uh, there's, there's different segments like the semiconductor index, the energy index, or... Uh, uh, stocks are kind of classified into these different groups, okay? They're called uh, market sectors. And what he's talking about is stocks that belong to some of these sectors had started going down sector by sector, stock by stock, sector by sector. And it started to create a divergence underneath the market. So what you have is you have the index continuing to rise, but then you got larger and larger portions of the index are starting to roll over and go down. And that's what he's talking about. So that's what, when you hear these guys talk about underlying weakness or something like that, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about sector by sector is rolling over and going lower, even though the index is, is going higher. And, and the professionals, they look for these kinds of things because it, it signals to them that the market overall is getting weaker and weaker and they want to start they want to start removing risk from their portfolio. So that, that's what he's talking about. And, and he's saying the Russell, the Russell as an index, the Russell 2000 as an index represents some of this, uh, some of the stocks that were, were, uh, had grown the most. And so he's saying that has rolled over and is going down. 
uh, and has been, even even though the S&P initially wasn't going down. The S&P 500 was still kind of going up. And so he's talking about that divergence in particular. At the risk of putting words in your mouth, you are as certain as you were then, if not more? I would say clearly more. I did freely admit, not in our conversation, but elsewhere, that I wasn't quite as certain about this bubble a year ago as I had been about the uh, tech bubble of 2000, or as I had been in Japan, or as I had been in the housing bubble of 2007. Um, I used to think then in terms of near certainties. This time I felt highly likely, but perhaps not nearly certain. Today, I feel it, it is just about nearly certain now. The hallmark of a bubble is what you have termed crazy behavior. What would you point to today, right now, as further evidence of crazy behavior? I think the crazy behavior, the peak of crazy behavior is behind us. I really do. I think um, we're now in the buy the dip mode, which the super bubbles specialize in. You don't have two years of buying frenzy, dying overnight typically. So even in 1929, you had some magnificent rallies. And uh, buy the dip is the watchword of practically every brokerage house out there. And it always is. You never, almost never, have a major brokerage house say, the game's over, guys, a duck. It doesn't happen. The commercial imperative is, is overwhelming to stay bullish. It's how you make money. It's this last part that I really want to comment on because he's right. The industry is arranged in such a way that it's always bullish. And that's fine most of the time. Um, we're going to talk about time horizon here in a minute. Jeremy Grantham comments on that. And most of the time, that's fine for the, for the industry to be bullish. But they don't really have a way of determining whether you're in one of these 1929 scenarios. And, and those do happen. Uh, they've, they've, they've happened uh, several times over the last uh, several hundred years. And the reality is most people don't know about these because they, you know, they're only 40 or 50 or they're 80 or whatever. And they just don't, uh, they don't have that uh, student of history kind of knowledge about the market. And so he's right though. You, which you'll, if you go ever, if you ever go talk to a broker, you'll hear him say things like, uh, you can't time the market. Um, uh, if you, if you're, if you're in and out of the market, you're likely to miss, you know, in any given year, there's only seven good days or something in the market. And you're likely to miss those seven good days. Uh, or they'll say, um, uh, there's all kinds of things they say, uh, but the reality is they. One of the reasons they say that is because they're they're managing billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars, and it's not practical for them to move in and out of the market. And so, they don't want their clients, you know, insisting that they move in and out of the market because they it's it's not practical. It's 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 more practical for them to put on hedges and things of this nature. So. Um, 
but he's right. There's the, the, the industry is full of cliches. And what you need to know is that it's, it's forever bullish. I mean, they're just always bullish. They're always talking about multiples and they'll bring up, they'll say inflation's good for the market. They'll say all kinds of things uh, in defense of being bullish for the market. And so as a retail investor or somebody who's saving, you just need to know that. If you're right and stocks are in a multi-sigma deviation from the statistical trend, tell me what happens the S&P 500 peaked at almost 4,800 points. Where does it bottom? The, the trend line being slightly generous is 2,500. And most of the great bubbles, the super bubbles, go below trend and stay there for quite a while. Uh, in the Greenspan era, that tendency stopped. In 2000, yes, the NASDAQ came down 82% which was fairly brutal. Amazon came down 92. But the Federal Reserve raced to the rescue so loudly and strongly that they stopped the decline in the S&P at trend line. It only declined 50%. 50% is a hell of a big decline, uh, but it was only enough to get it back then to trend. This time trend is at most 2,500. And I would expect even if the Federal Reserve tries to do the same, it will be hard to prevent the market from declining to that level. So we're talking about a decline of, certainly from the peak of almost 50%. Almost 50%. Yeah, so, you know, in 1929, uh, the market went down 89%. Okay, so maybe you could argue that 50%, you can recover from that, but uh, 89%, ugh. You know, that would just about wipe out most people we know that have uh, large 401ks or whatever. I mean, they, they might be faced with going back to work after being retired for 10 or 15 years or something. So we're, we're talking about a significant event. And I, the only thing I would take issue with is it depends on which trend you're looking at. So uh, a little inside baseball here. If I look at a 15-minute chart, I can identify a trend on the chart. If I look at an hourly chart, I can identify a different trend on the chart. If I look at a, a weekly chart, I can identify yet another different trend. So it depends on what time horizon you're looking at um, to talk about, to really understand what trend is it we're talking about if we're talking about a super bubble. I mean, uh, maybe we're talking about a trend that you have to really view on a monthly chart and if that's the case, I might even argue that 2,500 is probably not even um, the low of what you can see. And I can understand why Jeremy Grantham might be a little bit conservative in this interview. Jeremy, it's one thing to predict a collapse in stock prices. It's another altogether to tell investors they should sell. Should they? As I said a year ago, I think, I think they'll do pretty well. Uh, by selling. I'm sympathetic to uh, how difficult it, it is to get out entirely out of equities. And I would point out, as I did last year, that there are less overpriced parts of the equity market around the world. In fact, everywhere is less overpriced than the U.S. The U.S. is the peak of this bubble as it was in 2000. And what it meant then is what it will mean today, and that is the U.S. will decline a whole lot more than the rest. 
Uh, it's also true that the value end of the spectrum as opposed to the growth end is about as cheap as it gets. So if you can combine those by buying value stocks outside the US, I would say particularly emerging markets, but there's quite a few countries, Japan, the UK, where the markets are. If they're overpriced, they're only moderately overpriced. The US is not moderately overpriced. It is shockingly overpriced. Yeah, he's right. Uh, I don't have the numbers right here in front of me, but uh, the the market on average is overvalued by an order of magnitude greater than the amount it was overvalued in 2000. And, and everybody knows that the market got absolutely crazy in 2000 with the dot-com bust. So we're talking about a, a market that is significantly more overvalued than it was during the dot-com boom. So uh, we're, we're talking about a significant uh, uh, overvaluation here that, that could be corrected. Now, the other thing I want to say about the size of the correction, just real quickly, if you look at what we've done since 2009, so the 2009 bottom after the housing crash, a lot of a lot of it has been very artificial. A lot of uh, a lot of money printing, a lot of deficit. Uh, we've talked about how the the U.S. government borrows money into existence. There's been a lot of credit created. Um, you could argue. I know. I know. Jeremy Grantham said that uh, he's looking at uh, 2,500 on the S&P as a as a a, a target. But I, I I think you could make an argument that we actually go back to the 2009 lows. And I know that's a long way. That's like, I don't know, 600 on the S&P. So now instead of, um, instead of a 50% down move, uh, you're looking more like, you know, something like on the order of an 87% down move uh, back to the 2009 lows. So that would be more analogous to... Um, uh, what happened in 1929, and it also makes some sense uh, given what has happened in this country since 2009, with uh, with the way the Fed behaved, and in um, the way the interest rate policy uh, was carried out, and so on and so forth. So, just something to think about. I'm not saying we're going to go back there. I'm not saying that has to happen. I'm just I want I want people to think about. What would happen to you if the market lost 87% of its value? And um, you, 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 know, you might want to think about what you might need to do to keep that from happening to you. Because that would be a significant event that you would be, it'd be very difficult to uh, recover from, especially if you were in your retirement uh, years. What if I'm a long-term investor, say, running a pension fund or managing my own 401k, which I should add, I don't. But what if I'm one of those people? And I look at history, and history tells me that over time, independent or including crashes, stocks deliver a handsome return. And if I just stay in the market, I'll get that return, whether it's 7% or 8% or 9% or 10% over time. You know, if you... Uh could set your dial for 50 years and throw the key away, that might make some sense. But let me remind you that in 1929, you didn't get back in real terms until about 1954. That's a long wait. 
in 2000, you didn't get back for 13 years. By modern standards, that's a pretty long wait. And uh, in Japan, which is really the granddaddy of both bubbles, land, and uh, stocks, they are not back to their 1989 peak today. That is a very, very long wait. So if you think you can stand it for 10 or 20 or even 30 years, be my guest. But history says a lot of you will not stand it. A lot of you will become more conservative uh, deep into this kind of correction. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says a lot of you will become more conservative as we go deep into this correction? Well, what he's saying is there's there's a certain psychology that happens in the market, okay? Let me let me just take you through it real quick, okay? Let's say the market goes down 10%, and you're in the market, okay? You've, you're in a 401k or whatever. And what you're telling yourself, you're thinking, well, we're probably about to, about to bounce, okay? And then maybe it does bounce, okay? Maybe it bounces uh, up about halfway from, from the low uh, that, that it went down 10%. And, and what, what happens is the psychology begins to work on you, and you, you actually don't sell at that point, even though the initial down move made you nervous. And what you do is you say, oh, well, you know, we're going to new highs, okay? And then what happens is it rolls over and now makes a low lower than it was the very first time you thought, man, I should have sold. So then you rationalize, well, I'm probably closer to the bottom uh, and I should just hang on, okay? And it makes a, let's say it makes a significant low. Now we're down 25, 30%, okay? And let's say we get another bounce. And we, it's a pretty good bounce. Let's say it goes up, it goes up, uh, you know, uh, 50, 60%, you know, back up. And then the psychology again is, wow, we're going to new highs. The market's got a lot of strength. It's really bullish. You know, people are starting to chatter on the TV and you're starting to, you're starting to feel good about where you are again. Okay. And you rationalize, no, I'm going to hang on because I think we're going to go to new highs. And then it rolls over again. And this time takes you to 65% lower, you know, 60 to a 65% sell off. And then you're just stuck, right? You just say, well, God, we've got to be closer to the bottom then, you know, I mean, it doesn't make sense to sell here. I might as well just hang on at this point and potentially it could even go lower from there. So that is some, of, that's some of how the psychology works when, uh, when you have money in the market. And some of you may have experienced this and it's very, very common. We're all human beings and this is how we, this is how our mind works. This is how the emotional part works in our mind. Now, some people, what Jeremy Grantham was talking about is some people will actually give up and sell at that 65% low point. And this is what he was referring to when he said that we become increasingly conservative as the bear market continues. You say that the bubble you described back in January of 2021 has further inflated into a super bubble. And I'm curious to know, I think others would be too. What's the difference between a standard bubble and a super bubble? A standard bubble we defined over 20 years, perhaps 25 years ago, as a two sigma 
statistical event. It's just a measure of, of how much of an outlier you are. So you have a historical deviation series. from trend. Yeah, you have uh, you have a price series of the S and P. You can calculate a trend. Uh, statistics 101 is not difficult, and you can work out uh, how far away from trend you are. And a two sigma is the kind of deviation that should occur every 44 years. And because we're a little wilder and less efficient than we should be, it occurs every 35 years. It's not bad. We meaning human beings. We being, as a species. As a, as a species. Uh, every 35 years. It, it was a little closer than I expected uh, back then. But uh, every 35 years feels about right. One a career, twice a lifetime. That feels like a pretty decent definition of a bubble. And a three sigma should occur every 100 years. All right, there's a couple of things to unpack here in this latest um, question and answer with Jeremy Grantham. Um, the first thing I think I want to unpack is he talks about every 44 years or something like that for a two sigma move. Uh, and we'll get to what sigma is in just a second. But really what he's talking about is the oscillation or the cycle that happens in interest rates. If you go back and you look at interest rates over time, what you'll see is about every 45 years or so, I would say 35 to 45 years, you have a period where interest rates are going down for 35 to 40 years, and then they'll bottom and turn and go the other way for another 30, 40, 35 to 40 years. So what he's really talking about, I think, is, is interest rates. And interest rates now have, uh, they appear to have bottomed, and they're turning upwards. That's why he said that, that we have a rig... Um, he was talking about a, a negative real rate uh, because this interview was done, I think, just before interest rates started to, uh, to take off, meaning bonds started to really sell off. Okay, that's, that's the first part. The other, the other part I want to unpack is the, is the discussion around sigma. What is sigma? So everybody's heard of the bell curve or, or the, what's called the normal distribution curve. It's people call it the bell curve because it looks like a bell. But uh, the way this curve works is uh, in, in, in one standard deviation or one sigma contains 68% of all the data under the curve. Okay, And if you move out to the second standard deviation or two sigma, sigma just means standard deviation. If you move out to the second standard deviation, now you're talking about the bell curve contains 95% of the entire data set, okay? If you move out to a three sigma move, three sigma contains 99.7% of all the data in the particular data set that you're, you're talking about. So really what he's, what he's talking about is that when he says a two sigma move, he's talking about you could see market prices outside of that 95% range. If he's talking about a 3% or excuse me, a three sigma move, he's talking about you could see price activity outside of the 99.7% range that all market data falls in. So this is obviously a very volatile situation and one probably where you would not want to be in the market. Uh, there's just there's no hiding from these types of events. Um, it's not the same thing as a pullback. 
And so this is just something to be on the lookout for and to have a plan if you if you think we're headed in that direction. You, you, you basically can't hold through one of these events because it, it does uh, what it did to people in 1929. It completely wipes them out. Super bubbles can really wipe you out like 1929 did. And uh, that's where we are now. We, we entered a few months ago into Three Sigma territory, super bubble territory. And the other great risk is last year we also entered bubbles in real estate. So this is a, a very dangerous year that we've just had. It's bizarre, actually, when you're living through it, because you don't really think of it as a dangerous year. Um, but there was a lot of money. I mean, the M2 money supply went from like $8 trillion to $13 trillion or something like that. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, no, trillion, $8 trillion to $13 trillion. You can actually look it up. I, I may not be right about those numbers, but it, was, it went up significantly, like by 20%, the amount of money in the, in the economy sloshing around. And, of course, that goes into assets. And he's going to talk about assets here in a few minutes. And But I want you to remember what he's talking about on assets because what happens is that, that money goes, that's where that money goes. When, when it comes into the economy, it's spent by the government into existence, but then it quickly moves into uh, the to people whose hands who, uh, who own assets. Some bubbles are very specialized to U.S. growth stocks like 2000. And they, and they hurt. There is a wealth effect. People lose money. They, they pull back on their spending. But they don't hurt anywhere near as much as when you combine that with a housing bubble. So in 2008, where we had the only housing bubble in American history, that burst and the stock market came down 50% in sympathy. Then you're talking serious damage uh, to the economy through the income effect. Because this time, we have, as a multiple of family income, US housing suddenly is more overpriced than it was ever in the housing bubble of 2006 to 2008. It's, and, and it got there this last year since we last spoke. The biggest increase, 20%, that the US housing market index has ever had has taken it to a new high. And they are, in the US, still much cheaper than Canada, Australia, New Zealand, London, Paris, etc. So that is a global event that could cause enormous pain. So we have a housing problem, we have a stock market bubble like 2000, we have overpriced commodities, oil is 88, and, and uh, we have, of course, the lowest real rates in the history of man. So this interview, I just looked at a chart. He talks about oil being at $88. So this interview must have happened around February of this year. And so uh, oil was about $88 then. But he sums it up nicely. I mean, first of all, the, the effect that, that we're having is global. I mean, he talks about house prices in other countries. He talks about interest rates, which is also a global phenomenon, a real lowest interest rates in the history of man. And so this this type of scenario is the kind of scenario where you would get a big fall from. So be on the lookout. <laughs> if bonds are overpriced and stocks are overpriced, does that make the traditional 60-40 balanced portfolio useless? Absolutely useless. For years, investors have taken comfort in the notion of an implicit put. Anytime the market stumbled, the Fed 
would effectively bail it out with a rate cut or more recently by injecting liquidity. The Greenspan put became the Bernanke put, which became the Yellen put, and finally the Powell put. Does inflation and the handcuffs that it puts on monetary policy eliminate that implied option? It complicates it. And, and yes, it limits it. it. It probably does not remove it. Because of inflation? Yeah, and, and, and because of low rates. And now you don't have the tools that Greenspan had. Bernanke was more limited. He needed a lot of help from, from uh, Treasury, from government spending. And what about now? Now you have a much higher ratio of debt to GDP. You have much more debt on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, and you have much lower rates. They will try. They will have some effect. There is some element of the put left. It is just heavily compromised, as you suggest. Just to put the time frame in perspective once more, at the time he's making these comments, uh, the interest rate, the yield on the long bond was long bond, excuse me, was about 1.6, 1.7%. So it's it's uh, quite a bit higher than that now. In fact, it, it broke 3.2. So interest rates aren't quite as low as he's as he's talking about here in, in his comments. But yeah, uh, the, the, the reason he's saying that it's still possible is because, of course, the Fed can always monetize the debt. Um, there's nothing stopping them from doing that. Uh, but it will, it will accelerate inflation and it will also accelerate interest rates, which will make it more and more expensive for them to do this. The Federal Reserve is confident that it can contain inflation with a series of incremental rate hikes. What do you think it'll take? I think the Fed absolutely does not get the pain that's involved with a bubble breaking. You can see that uh, in the history uh, of the last 50 years. Greenspan encouraged the tech bubble. He bragged about the productivity gains from the internet that would last forever. Actually, productivity has declined uh, slowly but surely since then. Uh, when it broke, it caused a lot of pain. Bernanke learned nothing. He encouraged the housing bubble. He denied its existence, even though it was a three sigma, one in a hundred year event that had never occurred in American history before. And what have we learned? We just went straight back into the game, overstimulating, pushing the rates down, down and down they have gone for 50 years. So they started at 16% on the long bond, and now the real return you would get is minus two. Well, the Fed only has one trick, and we've talked about this before, and their trick is to borrow money and spend that money into existence. That's it. That's all they know how to do. So the Fed is, you know, is, is, is really not capable. Um, they, they're capable of creating these problems, and then they're capable of bringing them to a, a swift end. But the pain, uh, I agree with Jeremy Grantham, is going to be significant. And uh, it's probably going to be long-lasting. I mean, if you if you were to lose, you know, a, a large swath of the popula population loses 70, 80 percent of their net worth. I mean, it's going to take a long time to recover from that. Um, maybe some people never recover from that. You know, um, 
That's that's what happened in 1929. Some people never, ever recovered. Uh, the guy that founded General Motors lost General Motors during the Great Depression because he kept buying more of his stock, and the stock just kept going down. So there's some crazy things that can happen uh, in a mass, mass liquidation. You've been a longtime critic of Alan Greenspan. That's true. You're a critic of Ben Bernanke, and I suppose by extension, Janet Yellen, too. Do you have any confidence in the current chairman, Jay Powell? No. No, he hasn't expressed any res reservations about the Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen, Powell policy of pushing rates down. They act as if a low rate is a panacea and comes with no downside. That is clearly nonsense. It's created, I think, the biggest evil in, in our society, and that is inequality. If you drive up the price of assets systematically, and it's bound to happen if you drive the rates down to negative territory, who do you make money for? You make money for the people with assets. Who owns the assets? The top 1% has 35% of all the assets. The top 10% have practically all the assets. What are the, what's the asset ownership of the bottom half? A rounding error, a practically none. So you mark up the assets, and that, that's your contribution, contribution to society. So I absolutely agree with him here that uh, what the Fed is is evil. And it's not fair. Um, if, if the average person knew what the Fed did and how it actually operated and what its effect was in our economy, it, it would be gone tomorrow. But not one in a hundred, I think Murray Rothbard said, not one in a, not one in a hundred men know what the Federal Reserve does and what its effect is on the economy. And therein lies the problem. But uh, Jeremy Grant, we, we've talked about this, this inequality thing and what really causes it. We've talked about it in Bernie Sanders, the episode on Bernie Sanders, which was uh, episode uh, 43. And we talked about it in great detail in episode 22. So I would refer you back to those episodes for more detail about what creates the inequality in the first place. It has to do with the banking system and how rich people use the banking system to pyramid uh, businesses, uh, income earning businesses on top of income earning businesses. But at the end of the day, he's right. Those are assets. That's what we're really talking about. And the data bears that out right down to the last two years, when the top 0.1% has doubled its wealth during COVID. And, and the bottom 50%, I can assure you, has not doubled its wealth. The dominance of a handful of firms has increased steadily in most subsets. And so profit margins have gone up, and uh, the power of corporations has gone up, and they've been able to use more of their power uh, in influencing government, and they have. There is a lot of regulatory capture where people from business uh, tend to run the agencies that regulate the industries. He's just covering a litany of sim symptoms here, but he's right. All of these things contribute uh, to this inequality and, and also to the, the, the impact, the negative impact on your economic liberty. So, no, this is, uh, these are all good points, but it's just, it's just symptomatic of the, the greater problem with the Fed and specifically its intervention into our markets. And uh, that, that, I think, is the great poison at the moment in the American system. If we do not address 
rising inequality, we will be in real trouble. We are the least equal society, measurably, in the developed world. We have the least fluid economic mobility, for heaven's sake. You know, when I arrived in America in the 60s, it was a joke how rigid the UK was. The UK is now less rigid than the US. The number of people moving from the bottom quarter to the top quarter in a lifetime is half of what it is, say, in the Swedens of the world, in the US. We are the least mobile. I mean, this is so un-American. It is so far from what people believe to be the case. But check it. We're the least mobile. We're the least equal society. And it, it's a poisonous influence. And we have facilitated it. We have moved the, the taxes on capital, capital gains tax, dividend tax, interest tax. We've moved them down. And by definition, the amount that has to come from income has gone up. Well, whether or not we should be taxing capital, uh, I think that's a whole other discussion. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's going to solve the problem. I think, first and foremost, the phenomenon is a banking phenomenon. We have a... a, 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 we have a uh, a fractional reserve system. We have uh, a country that that uh, borrows and spends into existence vast amounts of money. I think the implication that Jeremy Grantham is talking about here that I m might disagree with is that um, you know what what's causing the inequality uh, it seems he seems to think is um, uh, the lack of some sort of socialism underlying. I mean, he's pointing to countries like Sweden and other countries in the world, and those are largely democratic socialist societies. And I don't think that's the solution for America. I think the solution for America is just less government. I mean, it's just less government, less Fed, no Fed, uh, hard money, um, and, you know, uh, eliminating fractional reserve banking. That'll, that'll do a lot to, um, to stop this flow of um, inequality that's ravaging our population.